All right, kiddos can go to children's church. Follow one of those ladies over there, if you wish. And the rest of you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. How about that? That was probably a surprise for you. All right, so this morning we, uh, we're continuing to, to follow this significant dialogue. Very significant, so significant we should take all the time we need to study it. But this dialogue between Jesus and the gathered crowd in, in the great temple on that day. So we've spent a few weeks, a few weeks already working our way really from verse 12 on down um, through verse 30. We've spent a lot of time there, but it's a rich section. Uh, um, the concepts and the truths there are straight from the Lord Jesus, so they're worthy of our time. This section started with this declaration in verse 12 of chapter 8, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That claim, it's an astounding claim, started this verbal sparring match with the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees are sort of um, pointed out there. They, they talked about what, what is a valid testimony? Jesus makes a claim, how do you know it's true? And they say, you can't be a witness to yourself. And Jesus tells them in verse 18, the Father is a witness as well. So there's two witnesses. The Pharisees say, well, where is your father? And then in verse 19, Jesus says, you know neither me nor my father. Then he says, if you knew me, you would know my father also. So if they got to know Jesus, they would get to know the father. That's what he's saying. That's a really important idea too. Then in verse 21, Jesus says he's going away. And where he's going, they cannot come. And they wonder out loud, is he going to kill himself? (laughs) Which is a pretty wild conclusion there. But he explains why they can't understand what he's telling them. So in verse 23 he says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's verse 24. And then the Pharisees come back full circle again and they go, well who are you? And that led to the answer we looked at last time in verse 28 where Jesus says when you lift up the Son of Man you will know that I am He. I do nothing on my own initiative but I speak the things, these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And it's at this point that John the Gospel writer steps in and gives us a little ray of sunshine uh, in this dialogue going on because of the reaction of a number of people in the crowd. So um, in verse 30 it says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So some in the crowd were coming around, right? He says many. I don't know how many is, but it's more than a few. So now we're ready to press on um, right through the next 28 verses. We're going all the way to verse 59. (laughs) So we're in the fast lane. But I got to say almost right away we crash into a speed bump. (laughs) Ouch. So we have to slow down for a minute in a minute. There's kind of a dicey interpretive issue there but we're going to make it all the way through. So, and this interpretive problem is kind of a head scratcher, but, um, and Bible commentators come to different conclusions, but I'll explain all that. But before we hit the bump, 
we have one of Jesus' most famous statements, which he makes because he indeed does perceive that many in the crowd are putting their faith in him. They're believing in him, at least at some level. So his mind is on them. He's speaking to them. They are sheep for his flock. That's how he looks at them, disciples in the making. So he speaks to them. And since we are part of his flock, he speaks to us as well. Verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. You hear that quoted all the time. People even quote it in ways that Jesus never intended. But we're going to talk about the ways he did intend it. But wow, um, uh, let, let me talk about that a little bit before we get to the speed bump. So these words in verse 31, Jesus is separating those who will say they believe into two groups. There are those who are going to stay with him and continue with him and there are those who won't. There are those who are committed to him who will follow and those who think he possibly is from God. They have some sort of faith but it's only a passing interest. It's a fleeting faith. They like him. They even think he's special. Maybe from God and then they're going to move on and find other things to do and other more important things. And I've known a lot of people like that. You probably do too. Too many actually. So then verse 31. Um, so think about this now. True disciples continue in his word. Those who don't continue are people that just don't prioritize him. He, he's, he's not prominent in their minds. They are, acknowledge him but don't think about him very much. He's not in their hearts. The Lord Jesus um, as Lord, Jesus as the Savior, it's just very easily dismissed for them. They don't think about it very much. If you ask them, they might even say, well, I think Jesus is God in human flesh. I, I think that's true. But they don't really treat him like God. He's not their God. They just think it's a true thing. Maybe to them he's the source of good fortune or good luck or a, a deity to lean on or somebody to pray to every now and then when you have real serious trouble. But to love him and serve him, that's not there. So that person would not be continuing in his word. They would not be a true disciple because to obey and follow him never really even enters the mind. But true disciples abide. They stay close. They continue. They learn. They grow. You know, Peter said at the end of chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Remember that? And that's exactly right. He has the words and we are to continue in his words. And Peter said that at a time right after a bunch of Jesus' disciples stopped following him in chapter 6. That's what happened. And then Jesus asked the 12, are you guys going to leave also? And that's when Peter says that. Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life, which is exactly right. So something happens with a person when they become a true disciple. Something's different about them. Something happens on the inside. This awakening takes place. It's a work of the Spirit of God that gives a new impulse in the heart, a new desire, uh, an impulse that's directed towards the Lord that makes God the center of things. Doesn't make us perfect, this impulse, but it makes us follow. It makes us follow. It calls us to worship. And it makes God, you know what it does? It makes God great in your heart. You see the greatness of God and you want to worship him. And it makes Jesus 
great as well. How does that song put it? He's altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Remember that song? Um, that's, that's what this work of God's grace does in your heart, the Spirit of God. And because we love him, we desire to know him and to live by his words. Continue in his word. Really important to understand that, that abiding in Christ's word is not what saves us. Uh, we're saved by faith in him, faith alone. But it is true that real faith holds on to Jesus and follows him and continues with him. Wants to please him and wants his word to be precious to us. I like the way William MacDonald said it. They are not saved by abiding in his word, but they abide in his word because they are saved. And I think that's the right way to say it. So if you call Jesus Lord and God, but have a take it or leave it attitude toward him, then you're not a disciple. So you got to search your heart and find out where you need to go. Now you can be a true disciple and struggle and have difficulty with living a righteous life. That, that's pretty normal. But if you don't struggle at all, you're not a disciple. The impulse to love and honor him is always going to be there and it moves us in a direction that he wants us to go. Okay then, so here's the promise Jesus makes to those who remain in his word. Verse 32, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So God's word is what is true and whatever else you might know by observation or by reason or whatever, we know that God's word is true. And trusting his word frees us from 10,000 errors. There's so many ways you can go wrong. Human beings have this incredible capacity to believe things that aren't true. I've noticed that all my life. In many areas of life too. And, but especially in regard to the big questions. The big questions. What are the big questions? Well they're the ones that matter the most, right? Why are we here? Does life have meaning? Is this world all there is? What happens when I die? So in many cultures, in cultures without a lot of outside contact, you know, people haven't come from anywhere, and they're just sort of insular, you know. There's still a few places like that in the world, but not very many. But um, the big questions are answered for you. You don't get to ask. Um, there's somebody there that's already told you and that's what your whole culture does. Sacrifice to your ancestors so they don't torment you. We all know that's true, right? You got to sacrifice to your ancestors or they'll plague you. And if you don't sacrifice, we're going to beat you up because we don't want them tor tor tormenting us. <laughs> Be sure to appease the spirits in the river or the trees or the mountain or whatever it is. This idol that I made last week, it's, it's a God. So offer it devotion and it will protect you. Those kind of things. It's like the, those are the cultural norms and that's what everybody in those particular cultures believe. But now that we see that many cultures have very limited beliefs, we, we say, well that's not worthy of my faith. Because obviously these people are insular people and primitive people. I, I'm above all of that. But if that's not worthy of your faith, then what is, is anything worthy of your faith? What is the truth of the world? That's a big question. What is the truth of the world? Do I have a soul? Or am I just chemistry and biology until I die and then I'm back into being little particles? God's word actually answers 
all the big questions. There aren't any big questions that aren't answered in the Bible. Even in very ancient times, it was the Bible, and as far as I can find, and I've looked, only the Bible said, those idols are nothing. We're talking about the Bronze Age, you know, those ignorant people. The Bible said, idols are nothing. There's nothing to them at all. Merely the work of man's hands. In fact, the Bible makes fun of them. Read Isaiah 44 sometime. Do I have a soul? Yes, I do. Am I biological? Yes, I am. Am I more than biology? Yes, I am. Much more. I should know that anyway. But we've been taught that we're not anymore. But yes, the Bible says we're much more. All the answers to the big questions are in the Word of God. That's why he communicated it with us so we would know. He spoke through prophets and the written word, but most of all, he spoke through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth sets us free from a thousand false beliefs. There's so many ways to go wrong, but you can be free from superstition and satanic lies. You can actually know the answers to the questions of life, and that's a very freeing thing, right? And in Christ, the answers are all satisfying. They're all wonderful. So to know that there's a creator, that he is infinite and eternal, and he's a person, a person who is holy and good, not just sort of holy, right through, good. But also he's full of mercy and compassion. He's a righteous judge, and he's a self-sacrificing savior of all who come to him. And that talks about another kind of freedom, the freedom from sin, right? Nothing else will matter if we're not free from the burden of our sin. You don't want to leave this world unforgiven. And God provided a way for us to be forgiven completely. The truth that Jesus speaks of here is that he will die to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what's coming in his life here. Jesus paid our debt to God on the cross. We're not only forgiven in Jesus, we have a whole new relationship with God. That's free and open, and we can go to him at any time through Christ. That's freedom. Okay, now we gotta hit the speed bump. Uh, Gotta deal, I could talk for a long time about this. In fact, I had planned to, then I said, nope, I can't do that. So I'll talk really briefly about it. But it all hinges on verse 33. That's our next verse there. How does it start? They. Who are they? That's the big question. That's the speed bump. So it says, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So who are they that is speaking. Are they the people who are believing in Jesus or are they the other people that are present, mainly the religious leaders and the Pharisees that this dialogue has been going with them all along here? So are we switching groups or is it the same old group who are the they? Now, I read a lot of Bible commentaries. The ones I have, the majority would say they are these people Jesus is talking to, um, the ones who believe in him. Why would they say that? Because usually if you have a they or a he or a she or something like that, you look for its immediate antecedent. Remember grade school? I don't know if they still teach grammar. But usually, so you're looking for who is the they talking about? Somewhere before the they, it's been mentioned who they are, right? 
And usually they is the closest person to the they. So if you read back from they, it's these people Jesus is talking to, uh, the ones who believe in him, right? The problem with that understanding of it is, where other commentators come into this, is that the rest of the chapter is a slugfest with they. I mean, it's, it's a brutal, and they hate Jesus, and there doesn't seem to be any belief in them at all, and it's like a war going on. So, and almost right away, Jesus tells them they're satanic. So, that's kind of a quick jump from they believed in him to you're of the devil. <laughs> what, what happened there? So, um, I think it actually fits better if the they are talking about they who have been they's all through chapter 7 and into chapter 8, which are the religious leaders and the Pharisees. This is my personal opinion, okay? So, if you read through chapter 7 again, there's many opinions about Jesus being shared amongst the crowd. In other words, the crowd is very diverse. Some even thinking he might be the Messiah. They actually say that. Not everyone in these crowds are hostile to Jesus, but the leadership always is, and they want Jesus dead. So in chapter 8, verse 13, who is it? It's the Pharisees. In chapter 8, verse 22, it's the Jews. And John always uses the phrase the Jews to talk about religious leaders, including the Pharisees, but also other than the Pharisees, scribes, priests, things like that, right? So they're all, they're, everybody there is a Jew by faith, but he calls the Jews, he uses that phrase the Jews for the leaders of the people. And Jesus tells the Jews in verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And the Jews are the they in verse 27, for example, of chapter 8. So I think what John is doing in verse 30 through 32, which is about those who believe, and he, you know, he gives Jesus words for them, so Jesus was saying to those who, Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Those verses are not only a profound truth, but I, they serve, I think, to set up the contrast between this group in the crowd that believe and everybody else that doesn't. And I think the they continues on with the they's before that, the Pharisees and the, the Jews. This is just my opinion, okay? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Okay, so people, good people differ about this. <laughs> but um, so people that disagree with me on this, they would say, well, they do believe in him, but it's such a shallow belief that they immediately turn against him and, and uh, uh, are at war with him. But that doesn't seem to be the way John's writing this thing to me. So, so I think these are people that overhear what Jesus says to the people that are believing in him. And they latch on to those final words, the truth shall make you free, and then they freak out. So, I'm pretty sure that in verse 33 where it says, they answered him, it refers to those who don't believe. They're the ones interacting with Jesus all through these chapters. So what do they say? Something kind of shocking and arrogant. So they say, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants that have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So these guys, instead of rejoicing in the truth, that the reality that we can be free by the words of Jesus, by knowing the truth, we can be set free, they get their hackles up. Us, we need to become free. We've never been enslaved to anyone, they say. So it's, uh, oh boy, we've always been free. Now, if you know the history in the Bible, from Abraham to Jesus, the Israelites, at least politically speaking, 
were hardly ever free. I mean, they were free in little spots, but that was about it. They, they were not usually free. And it, um, so that kind of seems ridiculous that they would even say that. It's sort of an insane, an insane level of national pride. Now, there are people that have insane levels of national pride, so it's very possible that that's what they mean. But how could they say that? We've never been enslaved to anybody. I mean, have they forgotten the central story of their history? <laughs> you know, like Egypt, like centuries in Egypt? I don't know. In fact, the key chapter in Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, where God ratifies the holy and sacred Abrahamic covenant that drives the entire Bible story. In that same chapter, God tells Abraham this. This is Genesis 15, 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. 400 years. They were not only slaves in Egypt, but they were utterly dominated by their neighbors during the period of the judges. They kept getting beaten up this side and that side and everything else. Then later, the northern tribes are carried away by the Assyrians into a captivity. And then a hundred years after that, the Babylonians come and take the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and take them away as well. And they're gone into captivity. And after that, Israel is under domination by the Persians. And then the Greek Seleucid Empire. And even on this very day, this conversation with Jesus is taking place. Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor, is sitting in Caesarea controlling the whole place. They're still slaves in that sense. They're oppressed. They're under bondage. They exist at the mercy of a Gentile, pagan, Roman emperor. And they all know that. These are educated men, right? So maybe they mean something else when they're saying we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. So I'm going to assume they're smarter than they seem and that that's what they mean. There's something else going on here. They, maybe they mean we have this special standing with God and nothing can take that away. Maybe that's what they mean. We are the chosen. Now, if you believe that you're the chosen, you can go two ways with that. One way is to see it as a gift that they didn't deserve. That's a precious gift given by God. It's a privilege and a responsibility to be a descendant of the man that God chose to be the father of a chosen people, a unique people through whom God would bless the world, especially in his son, Jesus, who is a son of David and a son of Abraham, right? Abraham gets real important in the rest of this chapter. That would, that, if that's their view, then that would make them humble children of Abraham. They didn't earn it. They were called by grace into this relationship with God. Now, there's another way to think about it. They could think, well, he chose us. So to God, we're number one. Better than all the pagans because we know the one true God. So they, it could be what you might call a misplaced pride in their bloodline. And the people Jesus is talking to, they went the second way. They went the second way. When they should be humble in imitation of Abraham, the man of faith, 
they're very proud. In fact, in the first century, um, the second view predominated in the thinking of Jewish culture and Jewish religion. They made so much about being Abraham's children, the chosen, the favored of God, but God never, told, never told them to bask in that as though they're better. He never said that. He's better. That's what makes them special. He's better. He's, he's the true God. But they thought about themselves as better, being the favored of God. They were called on to love God and obey God wholeheartedly to represent God to the world for the benefit of the world. That was what he called them to. Their calling was God's choice. He didn't go, look at these wonderful Jews. I've got to make them my people. No, he picked Abraham and he chose them through the line of Abraham to bring all these blessings to the world. The whole world. In fact, that was what the promise to Abraham was. In your seed, all the families of the world will be blessed. That's the promise God made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. It's in the very first things he says to Abraham. That was, their calling was God's choice. Not based on merit, but a gift. A gift to serve other people. That's exactly what God called them to. Let me just kind of walk you through a little bit of Old Testament here. You know, at the Exodus, at Mount Sinai, when God spoke to them, Exodus 19.6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does a priest do? Mediate. People will see me through you. That's what that means. Peter uses the same language about the church in 1 Peter. We have the same responsibility in that sense so the world can see God through our lives. 40 years after that at Mount Sinai when they were about to enter into the promised land Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 Moses tells them you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Now that's not all he says. He keeps going. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than all the other peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God he is God the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He's not telling them how wonderful they are. He's telling them how wonderful their opportunity is if they love him and obey him. So we see something really important here to remain free as a covenant people of God they must love God and keep, their, keep his commandments. Now why aren't they free? Why are they under Roman domination? Why were they under Greek domination? Why were they under Persian domination? Why were they under Babylonian domination? Because they didn't love God or keep the commandments. That's why they weren't politically free. Amos chapter 3 has a similar, just a really short line. He says, Amos 3.2, you only have I chosen 
among all the families of the earth. Yeah. Oh yeah. But then he says this. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. They're called but they blew it. And so there's an accounting for that. They must obey to live in the blessing of God and they haven't obeyed. They never did, not all through the Old Testament and not in Jesus' time either. What, what is tragic is that they had this disdain, this hatred for the pagans, the, the idolaters, the foreigners, the Gentiles. They wouldn't go under a pagan roof. If you invited them to dinner, they would not come. They might meet you outside, but they wouldn't go under your roof because it's there might be an idol in there. When a Jew came home to Israel from outside the borders of Israel, when they got to the border, they would shake all the dust, all the Gentile dust off their cloaks before they entered the land because it was defiling and polluted and contamination. Those people were sinners. But you see, the pagans are sinners and they were sinners in their idolatry and their perversion, their behavior. But the first century Jew was equally sinful on the other extreme. You've got the wild-eyed person that does whatever they want and they're wicked and you got the self-righteous person that thinks they're fine even though they've got just as much sin in their heart. Proud. They believed they were superior. They forgot that God abhors and punishes all kinds of sin. And Christians can fall into that too, right? Well, we don't do what they do. Obviously, God's going to bless me. People do not stand in pride over the pagans who worship idols and fall into gross sins. Measure yourself instead by the law of the Lord. Measure your life by the life of Jesus Christ and his teaching, teachings. Then you'll see how sinful you are. What does it say in James? Hold, look at that mirror, that holy law mirror thing and, and take a good look at yourself too, right? Then, don't pat yourself on the back. Cast yourself on God's mercy. That's what you should do. These first century Israelites were committed to salvation by ancestry. They really did think that. What do we need to be set free from? We're not in bondage. We're the chosen ones. So listen to what Jesus says here in John 8, 34. It's one of those truly, truly statements. That means it's like really serious. One to be heard and held tightly. 8:34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. If you sinned, you are a sinner. Whether you're a pagan or a Jew, right? That's the answer. You, the individual, regardless of ancestry, stand before God as a sinner. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That's a pretty clever analogy Jesus uses here. So we have this contrast between the slave and the Son, right? Big difference. A slave is in a household maybe and has no rights. 
No inheritance. In fact the master can say. I'm selling you tomorrow. And you'd be gone. Right? The son inherits. Everything belongs to him. And the slave's life. Depends entirely on the favor of the son. So what is Jesus doing? He's starting to draw some lines. About paternity. You know. Whose father? Who's your real father? They said they were free because Abraham was their father. And Jesus is taking that idea head on. Is Abraham really your father? Or are you a slave? Watch how Jesus does this. He is so good. You kind of expect him to be good. But he is. He's really good. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you seek to kill me. Right, right there, there's something wrong. <laughs> you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Oh, paternity issue, huh? Who's their daddy? Who, who's your father? Very proudly they claim Abraham. Verse 39. They answered and said to him. Abraham is our father. That's, that's what they're counting on. Salvation by ancestry. Okay let's measure that claim. With a paternity test. Not a DNA sample but. Character. Let's measure you by Abraham. Verse 39. Jesus said. If you are Abraham's children. Do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is. You are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth. Which I heard from God. This. Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds. Of your father. So would Abraham try to kill one that was sent from God? No. Well then you must have a different father. Than the one you think you have. They respond with this, verse 41. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now there might be a little insinuation there in verse 41 about Jesus' birth. You know those rumors about his mother? Pregnant before she got married. But they stand on God being their father now. Jesus doesn't get angry at them. He's uh, Actually I can imagine him, you know we don't know tone of voice you can't always know that when you're reading something right but um, I can see him getting calmer and clearer with the next part here because they've just claimed that God was their father in verse 42 Jesus says if God were your father you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come on my own initiative but he sent me So here's a godly man, a child of God. A godly man would love God's messenger. If you just understand that much about Jesus, God sent him, then you would love that. You would love him. You'd want to hear what he has to say. The very one sent by God. And so Jesus then asks a question to get him thinking, if they're going to think. But he says, why? Verse 43, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. They don't have the capacity to hear his word. 
to see Jesus as he is, to understand. And that's because they have their paternity exactly backwards. The, DNS, the DNA test came back and guess who their father is? Satan is your father. <laughs> you have all the marks there, all the genetic marks in your character, in your faith, in what you're practicing and the way you think. You are a child of Satan. He tries to, Satan tries to thwart everything God does and they've taken up his task. They're, they're following him. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. So two things are fundamentally true of Satan and of them. He was a murderer from the beginning and they want to kill Jesus. The most righteous man on the planet. And he lies. He is a liar and the father of lies. Satan invented lying. That's his stock and trade. That's what he does best. He always has new lies to tell. Whatever can keep people away from God, he'll feed it to you. He has a lie, you know, for every circumstance that you're in. He has a lie for every personality type. He has lies for everyone. He has lies for the most depraved sensualist and he has lies for the most staunch, self-serving, stand-up, upstanding, self-congratulating religious leader. He's got lies for both of those people. Just like these priests in the temple or the Pharisees on the big council or the scribes that study the word of God all the time and hate Jesus. These, these guys that Jesus is talking to, they bit the apple. They've bought in to the lies. They believe they are wise and good and God's son is worthy of death. That's what they believe. So the reason they don't accept Jesus is because they have embraced the lies of their father Satan and Jesus says they actually want to do what he desires them to do. So you know human beings ever since man fell, Adam and Eve, ever since then we all are inclined against God. There's this part of us that is profoundly rebellious in our hearts. And Satan just feeds us lies to keep us in that place of rebellion so we won't move out of it. He's got to hold our will and keep us and he does it with lies. And if we believe his lies, we'll never find salvation. Verse 45, Jesus says, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. You don't know that you're following Satan's lies, but that's what you're doing. That's what he's saying. They say, we're on God's side, but we're, actually, we're children of Abraham. But they're not on God's side and they're not children of Abraham. Because Abraham would never do what they're doing. That's the great challenge. Anytime you speak to someone who doesn't want to follow Jesus, just look for the lie that they believe. That's, that's where you start with them. What do they believe? What's the lie that they're believing? The father of lies has fed them a well-crafted lie tailored for them so it's easy to reject Christ, the only hope of salvation. So Jesus has two really good questions. Verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, 
Why do you not believe me? Those are both good questions. They have a perfectly righteous man in front of them. And they want him dead. Why? Why? Think about it. Why? He tells the truth. Why don't you believe him? Think about it. Why? Here's why. Verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. So what, what does Jesus mean when he says of God? I mean he says that's the reason, right? What does that mean? Well, no human being since Adam and Eve is of God by birth. It's the opposite. We're born into a rebellious race of people and that we have that nature. We're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve as C.S. Lewis would say. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus who was a theologian, a leader of Israel who sat on the great council and came to Jesus because he was genuinely interested. And what did Jesus tell him? You must be born again. Because birth number one left you in a bad place. <laughs> You're children of your parents. You need to be born again. God has to change our hearts. We all need a spiritual heart transplant. That's why the new covenant promise in the Old Testament, whether Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36, let me give you the Ezekiel 36 version. This is the promise God made of the new covenant. He said, I will give you a new heart. I will do it. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. Only a work of God's grace makes us of God. You're not naturally that way. And what does it mean by being of God? Seeing things God's way, wanting God over self, the world, other things. And Satan has to thwart that. You know, you know, you want to know how deep a lie can go? How, how wrong somebody can actually be? Look at verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Oh my goodness. <laughs> the delusion is deep. The lies are strongly held. The mind is closed. Well, I know we're running out of time. I think at this point I can just read the rest of the chapter and you'll pick up on what's going on here. So let's do that. Verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, <laughs> but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. 
And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That's it. That's the I am. God's name. When Moses asked God at the burning bush what his name was, God said, I am. You read the book of Genesis, God comes and has dinner with Abraham and Sarah. Three men show up, two are angels, one is God. So Jesus is talking about the ancient past here. You know, we've talked about several places in these chapters, chapter 7 and 8, where Jesus says, I am he. It's the same words, ego, a me, which can be translated I am, but you, you can see in the context it could mean I am he, but it can't mean that here. It can't mean that here. Jesus is talking about the ancient past. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus did. So we're talking about before Abraham was born. But he's using the present tense. Which means he's not, he's not saying before, you know, before Abraham was, I was there too. I was, I was around. He's not just saying he's eternal. He's eternally present everywhere at once. He's God. That's the I am name. Not I existed, but I am. He is the eternal one, the only God. And they understand him perfectly. Verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why would they pick up stones and throw at him? Because he just claimed to be God. I mean, that's why. It's blasphemy to them. It's only blasphemy, though, if it's not true. If it's true, it's the most glorious truth in the whole world. That the greatest man that ever lived, who went to the cross for our sins, is God, the I Am. Jesus is indeed God become man. And here he says it himself. He is the I Am. And they wanted him dead. That's how the discussion ends. That's how the chapter ends. With hands grasping for rocks on the ground to stone him. It's human nature to ignore God, it, it, to make substitute gods, to get away from God. And when seeing the goodness of God face to face, humans want to kill him. But the truth is, he actually came to save us from ourselves. And he will do that for you when you humble yourself and recognize yourself as a sinner and put your trust in him. Well, I guess I've used enough time already. So um, next week, I, I'm thinking about instead of going on to chapter 9, maybe coming back and talking a little bit more about Satan as the father of lies. Maybe we'll do that. We'll see. Hang in there. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the great I am. You know all things, even the depth of our hearts. Show us our true selves, we ask you, and our need to humble ourselves before you. Take away all religious pride, sinful pride, all disdain for others who actually need you as we do. 
and set us free from self that we may be wholly and completely yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.